In a national disaster, many may be in need of medical care. But one researcher looked at who is actually going to show up for work to provide that care and why they would do so. You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Linda Cruz. Dr. Cruz has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology, and she's the Director of Research for Emergency Medicine at Temple University School of Medicine. And she is the Chair of the Emergency Response Workgroup of CPREP at her institution. Today we're discussing healthcare workers, what influences, who's going to show up in a disaster for work. We're very glad you're able to talk to us today, Dr. Cruz. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, you've got several titles, but tell us what your role is at Temple University. Well, first of all, I am the Director of Research in Emergency Medicine at Temple's Medical School. So I'm very involved with emergency preparedness activities as they're conducted within our department. I also sit on several of the health system and hospital emergency prep committees that are more operationally based. And I am the chair of the emergency response work group for the Center of Preparedness, Research, Education, and Practice. That is a university-wide interdisciplinary research center based at Temple. Now, CPREP partners with state and local government agencies and emergency response organizations to generally study and improve Pennsylvania's emergency preparedness. So the work you do at Temple actually reflects back on Temple's preparedness and extends into Pennsylvania? Yeah. CPREP is involved to a great degree with some of the local city and state preparedness activities and, and plans, but we're also very involved with what goes on right here on our own grounds at Temple University and the hospital and health system campuses. So the work you do has a direct influence on your on your area and, and your focus when you did this study. Tell us how you set the study up. Okay, well this was a prospective survey study of healthcare workers from five area hospitals. And what we did was we had participants complete a survey instrument that used both written and video material to present three hypothetical disaster situations, the first one being a public riot, the second being a mysterious infectious disease outbreak, and the third being a regional power grid outage. Now, were these like news clips? They were real-time videos, or were they something that was put together in the studio? The video was news clips that we used, and we also provided written and narrated descriptions of each disaster scenario to really try to make it as realistic as possible. And then following their watching the video and and listening to the descriptions, the participant answered a series of questions assessing whether or not they would be willing to go to work, whether or not they thought they would be able to go to work, a set of psychological variables. Also, they let us know if they had any prior disaster preparedness training and their demographics. So tell us about the psychological variables. What were they? We assessed a number of different psychological variables that are guided by the C-SHIP theory, which is cognitive health information processing, that is by Miller and her colleagues. The first important variable in that model is one's beliefs and expectancies or about what the outcomes of the situation might be. So, for example what is the perceived risk of danger to the self or family, what do they think might happen, how effective do they think the personal protective equipment is, or how well the specific institutional recommendations, how good they are to reduce one's risk of harm. And self-efficacy expectancies, which include things like 
your perceived ability to protect yourself from exposure to illness. Tell me about the infectious one. That sounds kind of interesting. Did you give them a scenario where it was um, unknown and devastating, like fears of Ebola, or was it more like multidrug-resistant TB? What kind of examples or scenarios did you give them for infectious? Well, we just left it very vague that approximately 20 people were admitted to the hospital with a strange flu-like illness, about half of which had died, a number of healthcare workers who only had a little bit of contact with the patients were now sick. So a lot of ambiguity surrounding the situation, again, kind of reflecting what the initial phases of an outbreak might look like. Okay, so let's look at the infectious or the outcome on that for a moment. What did you find in terms of people when they were confronted with something that was an unknown and that their hospital may or may not have adequate preparation for defending them against because, as you just said, it's an unknown? Yeah, what we found was about 35% of participants said that they would be very willing to come in during that type of a situation, while about half of them said they would be able to come in. The majority of folks did say that they would worry about catching the illness at work and exposing their family to the disease. About two-thirds were confident that the appropriate protective equipment would be provided to them. However, half were very concerned that not enough protective equipment would be available to them after the first couple of days of, of an outbreak. About a quarter of the sample said that they felt that their family would probably be supportive of them coming into work. So three-quarters didn't think they were going to have that family support to come in. Less than half of folks felt that it would be very important to work in this situation, and less than half anticipated that they would be very effective in their role while working. So you did riot scenarios, you've told us, and you did infectious. And did you do one with weather? We did a regional power outage. Power outage, okay. Right, a power outage throughout the Northeast part of the United States and parts of Canada. Did it have overtones of terrorism because it was such a widespread area? Because that's what they thought when the lights went out in New York by the borders of Canada, right? No, not necessarily. We just kind of, again, left it left it vague that the power had gone out due to the, the power grid. But the important part of this is that, you know, all water pumping stations in the area also depend on power. So you lose power, you lose water. It's the middle of the summer can't drink, bathe, flush the toilet, you know, you can't access gasoline. So, you know, all these things kind of snowball and it really turns into a much larger scale disaster than just the lights going out. So we looked at that and about 40% of folks said that they would be willing to come in in that type of situation and about 40% thought that they would be able to. The majority of folks did feel that it would be dangerous for them to travel and they worried about their personal safety while traveling. A majority of folks also would worry about their family's ability to meet their own basic needs during that type of a situation. Now, do you think there's a need to go into this at at other levels? Because some of the things that you haven't touched on, the things maybe in communities you feel less prepared to deal with, even the big cities, such as a dirty bomb, nuclear attack, reminders of 9-11. Is there other areas that you think you need to get into more and look at? And could the response be totally unexpected there? Well, one thing that we found is that Consistently across all these scenarios, the biggest predictors of willingness and ability to come in is how important somebody feels that their role is in the overall scope of the the hospital response or health system response, and also how effective they think that they can be. Now, there were some subtle differences across each of the scenarios with regard to some of these psychological variables. Now, very broadly, we know that from other literatures, 
that every individual is characterized psychologically by a pretty stable set of relationships among, you know, their their thoughts and their feelings and what their goals and values will be and, and what their skills are and so forth. And so that set of relationships among those variables is what guides how a person pays attention to information in their environment. And then that activates what their expectations about that are going to be or what their beliefs are going to be about it, as well as their emotional response. You know, are they worried, fearful, are they angry, are they depressed? And in a very cyclical fashion, those emotions then will influence, you know, what information the person takes in and what they're paying attention to. Are they paying attention to threatening information, you know, in their workplace or or what's being given to them? Or are they trying to avoid that information altogether? And how these things kind of interact with each other, we know from, again, other literatures, really influences whether or not somebody will engage in a particular behavior, whether that be, you know, signing up for a weight loss program or, you know, showing up for work during a disaster. Now, what are the next steps? If you were given today, Dr. Cruz, limitless funding from the government, the CDC, whoever, and you could look into this at any aspect, what's the next level of research you would want to do to see test the validity of your prior responses and maybe take it a step further? Well, what we'd like to do is to further investigate the dynamic relationship among these psychological variables. As I've alluded to, you know, a similar line of work has been done in other areas where they've successfully developed interventions and so forth to change people's behavior. So if we have a better understanding of the relationship between an individual's thoughts and feelings and skills and abilities and values and so forth that they bring to this type of crisis and how these things interact with one another, we can then move forward in figuring out what the best message is to give these workers so that we can get them into work and do what's needed to be done. People respond in very individualized ways. And I think being able to better understand that on the individual level will help us, you know, much more broadly when dealing with a disaster response. You think knowledge is the answer, that if people in various jobs at different levels and different descriptions, if they if they understand their hospitals or their facilities preparedness, they could have faith in that against the unknown because something like nuclear or when the power goes out and you don't know the source, personally, I mean, that could be very intimidating or very frightening, and you would want to stay home and protect your, your family. Can your institution go beyond this and showing the support and increase the response rate? Well, I I think that's true. But, you know, when we start to talk about, you know, training and giving people information, we know that there's very generally two different types of people that are out there. We have our our monitors or people who tend to pay attention to threatening information. They want to know everything they can so they can prepare themselves and and use that information in, in a very effective way. But then there are other individuals who tend to, avoid threatening information. So you put somebody like that in a training situation, and they may say, you know, avian flu, that's really scary stuff. I don't even want to go there. So they may shut down and not hear the message. So what you may want to do in that type of a situation is to present everybody with the critical information, but just couch it a little bit differently throughout the training program so that the avoiders or blunters can hear it in a way that's not so threatening, that it's comfortable for them, that they can still get what they need to get from the training, whereas the monitors, you know, who are already queued up, they're getting their more detailed information and and they're ready to go also. And one thing that we know about monitors also is that when they're confronted with 
extremely high levels of threat that sometimes they tend to shut down. So hopefully we would be able to give them the skills so that they felt comfortable enough to manage even the most threatening of situations and they could then perform effectively in their role. Dr. Cruz, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you. We've been discussing coming to work in a disaster, who's going to be there and why, and how it affects your practice. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.